We have uh, several expressions for it. In hindsight, or looking back, or in retrospect, or sometimes we refer to, we refer to it as Monday morning quarterbacking. They all refer to seeing things more clearly after the event. And you know, biblical prophecy is sometimes like this. It's easier to understand the prophecy after the fulfillment than it was before it was fulfilled. Well, surely this is the case with the prophet Isaiah. He was given a vision of an individual known only to him as the servant of the Lord. And in this vision, he sees this servant and, 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 and it's a vision of the intense rejection of this servant by the people of Israel and, and ultimately the brutal death of this servant. But the prophet sees that the servant is actually carrying out God's purposes in his suffering and death. That servant that he sees in this vision is actually fulfilling God's purposes for the redemption of the world. Let's listen now to Isaiah's vision found in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering... He will see his offspring 
and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Imagine receiving this prophecy 700 years before the fulfillment would come. And for that length of time, no one knows with certainty for whom or how it will be fulfilled. But then in what the Apostle Paul calls the fullness of time, God sent His Son, and He is the one of whom this amazing prophecy spoke. And now we understand it as a detailed descriptions of the sufferings and death of Jesus, the anointed of God, the Messiah. And so today being Palm Sunday, the day we commemorate as the day that begins the final week of Jesus' earthly life. We want to focus our attention today on His suffering and death. And this will continue in our Good Friday service this week, but then next Sunday we gather to celebrate His triumph over death and His glorious resurrection. But today we want to look at this vision of Isaiah, a vision in which he saw the suffering and death, but also the triumph of our Savior. So I've entitled it today, The Suffering of Our Savior. And just by way of context to put this vision of Isaiah into a a little larger context, as I said, Isaiah the prophet lived and wrote his prophecies about 700 years before Christ. And Isaiah is given visions of the work that God would do in the future. It was a dismal, horrible time in Israel's history and and judgment would be coming upon the nation. But, But Isaiah was given visions of what God would do yet at some point in the future. And in these visions, he sees an individual that God will use to carry out his redemptive purposes. He's not able to see with clarity who this individual might be so as to identify him. He sees him only as as the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord is going to accomplish God's redemptive purposes. We see this in Isaiah 42, where he has a vision of the servant. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice 
to the nations. So here is, is one that Isaiah sees that the Lord identifies simply as my servant. And it is the Lord's chosen one through whom he will accomplish his redemptive purposes. And there's no question that this was fulfilled in Jesus in his baptism when he received the Holy Spirit. See in Isaiah 42, I will put my spirit upon him. And that was that visible fulfillment of that. And, and, and in Isaiah, uh, and then we had that voice from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. My soul delights. He is the one that will one day bring justice to the nations. And then we see this servant again in Isaiah 49. And now the Lord, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. I will also make you a light to the nations so my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. His purpose is here are redemptive. Through this one called the servant, he will restore the nation of Israel to God, but he will also be a light of God to the nations and provide salvation for all people, the ends of the earth. And again, we see the fulfillment of this in Jesus. So our passage today that we're going to look at also deals with the servant of the Lord, but this time it is a depiction of the suffering that the servant will experience. So he is often referred to here as the suffering servant. Comes from this passage, Isaiah 53. As a servant of the Lord, he is carrying out the will and purpose of God to bring redemption and salvation. But in order to do that, he must endure great suffering. So our passage actually begins in chapter 52 at the very end. And that's where we want to begin. And these verses, chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, they're really kind of just an introduction to the servant, kind of an overview of what the servant will accomplish. Let's begin at verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The portrait of this servant opens with the word, Behold, pay attention. This is important. Don't miss this. There's something unusual here. And Isaiah sees in this vision one called my servant, that servant of the Lord. And he's carrying out God's purposes for redemption. And Isaiah is told here that the servant will prosper. The servant, who is a servant, but will prosper. You see, that's, that's unusual. Servants aren't normally lifted up and, and, and greatly exalted. But Isaiah uses these expressions to convey the truth that this servant will be given a place of preeminence over all. My servant is going to be exalted over all. And this will be in spite of what the servant will experience. And it will be as a result of what the servant will do. 
Now, why is it unusual that the servant of the Lord would prosper? Well, he describes the experience of the servant in verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you. Now, some trans, this is translated differently in the different versions. And uh, the NAS says, astonished at you, my people. But I think the, it, it, it more accurately refers to the servant himself. They were astonished at you. And it's not uncommon in Hebrew poetry to go from the second and third persons, from you to him and, and, and so on. And so they were astonished at you, the servant, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Isaiah says people were astonished. They were shocked. They were appalled, horrified when they looked at him because his appearance was marred more than any man. His physical appearance had become so disfigured, so beaten, and so devastated. That's the word actually used of an invading army and the result of the destruction. It was beyond human likeness. This is the degree of physical suffering that the servant endured. The question was, how can one like this, who suffered so much beyond recognition, how can this be a savior? But then Isaiah sees the final and purposed result in verse 15. Thus, you see, thus, therefore, as a result of his, his appearance being marred in his form beyond anything recognizable, as a result... Of that he will sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told, for what, not had, been, for what had not been told them they will see. And they will, had not heard what they will understand. The word sprinkle here, he will sprinkle many nations. It is a reference clearly understood by the original readers here, to the ritual cleansing of the Old Testament. And so this one, this servant, as a result of what he experiences in verse 14, he will bring cleansing of sins to the world, to many nations. He will sprinkle many nations. And the kings of the world will shut their mouths on account of him. Even the kings will one day bow in submission to this servant. Reminds us of Philippians chapter 2, doesn't it? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim. And so in this overview, we're introduced to the servant. He will prosper and be successful, but he will first be shockingly brutalized. But through this, he will bring God's cleansing and God's rule to the nations. So that's the overview. Now Isaiah is going to give us a more detailed description of the servant. We begin with his rejection. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah laments that in this vision, so few people believed the message about the servant. Who has believed our message? 
So few understood that it was the arm of the Lord, the very strength and power of God that was at work through the servant. The message about this suffering servant is rejected. And so it is today. In verse 2, there's the reason for the rejection. He wasn't what the people wanted or he wasn't what they expected. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we would even be attracted to him. You see, the servant didn't come with the characteristic upon which the world places value, like power, and prestige, and appearance. Isaiah describes him as a tender shoot, a root out of parched ground. That's, a, that's like a, a small twig that grows out of a stump of a, of a fallen or tree that had been cut down. Or the puny and weak shoot that is struggling to grow out of dry and hardened soil. Just small with... with No attractiveness. His appearance was weak and insignificant and not at all what was expected of a Messiah. He had no stately form or majesty nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He did not have that which was attractive to natural man. He did not come with pomp and regality, and power, and prestige. But he came as a simple and common man. The world places value on the external looks, and prestige, and persona, and and charisma. But Jesus didn't come in that way. He came with righteousness, and truth, and humility, and grace qualities that are often rejected by the world. And in verse 3, we see the intensity of the rejection. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. He was intensely rejected because of who he was and because of his righteous character. He was regarded with contempt. His life was characterized by sorrow. He experienced grief because of the rejection. Remember he wept for Jerusalem because they had rejected him and he knew the judgment that was going to come upon them. He wept for Jerusalem. He was despised. He was hated in spite of the loving and saving purposes for which he came He was despised. He was like one from whom men hide their face. Figuratively speaking, he was treated as one with a loathsome disease. So strong was the rejection by many. And he was not esteemed. He was not held in the esteem and high regard for who he was. We did not esteem him. This is the rejection of the servant. And we see here the rejection of the Lord Jesus. 
and by many he is rejected in a similar way today. He is rejected because his righteousness demands repentance. And his grace demands faith. And following him demands humility. And he is rejected. Isaiah then sees the redemptive suffering of the servant. And I want you to see this. Not just the suffering, but the redemptive suffering of the servant. I want to read these next three verses together. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, I want you to see two things in these three verses. First, I want you to see the reality and brutality of his suffering. There are seven words that describe his suffering in these three verses. He was stricken. That means struck so as to be weakened. He was smitten. That's the word used for the judgment of God upon someone. He was afflicted, a word that describes the agony of pain and suffering. He was pierced, and that's the idea of a violent death. He was crushed. That is a breaking in pieces and shattering. He was chastened. It refers to a father's displeasure or anger. And he was scourged, the horrendous agony of being beaten and whipped. These are the sufferings that Isaiah saw inflicted upon this servant. And these are the sufferings that the Lord Jesus endured physically, emotionally, and spiritually. A graphic picture of his pain and his suffering and his death. But I also want you to see in these three verses the reasons or purposes of his suffering. And we have God's redemptive purposes here. The ultimate reason for his suffering is found in verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have all in our sins gone away from God. And it's not that we have just accidentally strayed away. He says, each of us has turned to his own way. We have turned our backs on him. And rebelled against him. And consequently, justice demands a penalty for our rebellion. And Isaiah sees in this vision the servant enduring and paying the penalty for himself. For our sin and rebellion. And I want you to note how many times and how many ways this is stated. Look at this. He was pierced for our transgressions. 
You see that? He was being punished for our sin. It fell upon Him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, the, the punishment that was due to us, the judgment that was due to us, was poured out on Him. It's an amazing, amazing prophecy for Isaiah to, to, to see this vision and understand it in these terms. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. Our, the chastening that we deserved, it fell upon Him. By His scourging, we are healed. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. This is God's redemptive purpose in the suffering and death of His servant. This is not just a prophecy that the servant would die. Much more than that. But that He would die to carry out the Lord's plan and purpose to bring redemption and salvation. He would die a death not deserving of his own sin, but he would die a death because of our sin. And the guilt and punishment for our sin was put upon him in his death. His servant carried out his will by dying in the place of those who deserved judgment. And this is indeed what the Lord Jesus accomplished in His death. But what was the servant's attitude in all of this? It's another amazing thing that we see here. The submission of the servant in verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. That's just a description of what we saw in the previous three verses. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. He didn't fight it. But rather he willingly endured it. He didn't open his mouth. He was silent before his shears. What does this suggest? It indicates that he was willingly and willingly obeying and fulfilling the will of God. It suggests that he endured all of the rejection and suffering knowingly and willingly and out of love. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The idea is that he was sentenced and condemned by an unjust legal system. And such were the so-called trials of Jesus. It was a mockery of justice in which he was accused, convicted, and condemned. And as for who, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? It was due to them, but it was poured out on him. And he's saying here, for those of his generation, who even gave it a thought about what he was doing? Who understood what he was doing and what was transpiring? But he did it. He did it unnoticed. 
not seeking attention for himself. And so the servant Jesus willingly died almost in obscurity, but in reality was bringing redemption to the world that had rejected him. Verse 9, we see more details of his death, but also the innocence of the servant. His grave was assigned with wicked men. First, we, we, we understand here that it would normally have been his, uh, that Jesus would have been placed in a common grave. Okay? Because he had you know, no earthly wealth or anything. And for those who were crucified as criminals, as which he was accused, his, he, his body would have normally been put in a common grave with other criminals. A sign of great dishonor. And so his grave was assigned with wicked men. That's what would normally have happened. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor, there was, any, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And we know the story here that Joseph of Arimathea, a and indeed wealthy individual intervened and asked for the body and placed the body of his tomb in his tomb of a rich man. He was with a rich man in his death. What an amazing prophecy this is. And then Isaiah gives the reason why he was ultimately honored in his death because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was perfectly innocent and pure. And he had not sinned. And this statement showing again that he was not suffering for anything he had done. He was suffering for the sins of others. And this innocence nor deceit found in his mouth find its fulfillment in the sinless life of the Lord Jesus. And then finally we have the final stanza, the triumph and reward of the servant. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. It's another reference to uh, the, 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 the horrendous nature of his suffering. If he would render himself as a guilt offering... Again, this is another way to state the purpose in his death. He is an offering to God in our place because of our sin and our guilt, but he is our guilt offering, the offering that God accepted on our behalf. He will see his offspring. What's this? What's this referred to? That means that he will see and enjoy the fellowship of a multitude of redeemed for whom He suffered and died. Those who indeed will be saved are His offspring, the result of His suffering and death. And He will see His offspring. And then it says, the Lord will prolong His days. He will live a long life. And this is a veiled reference to the resurrection. And the idea is that he will enjoy the fellowship of those whom he has redeemed, his offspring 
throughout eternity because the Lord is going to prolong His days through His resurrection. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. The good pleasure of the Lord is God's purpose for the work of the servant to call to Himself a redeemed people. That's God's good pleasure to save a people for Himself. And it shall prosper. In other words, it will find its fulfillment. It will succeed. It will come to reality. God's purposes for the work of the servant shall be abundantly fulfilled and enjoyed. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, again referencing back that suffering that that he would endure, he will see it and be satisfied. Oh my. It's amazing that Isaiah could, could, could see this, these truths 700 years before it happened. The righteous wrath and anger of God against our sin will be satisfied by the wrath and anger poured out on the servant. He will see it and will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, those who are described as sheep gone astray, those with transgressions and iniquities. They will be justified and declared righteous he will justify the many declare them righteous this will happen through the work of the servant because he will bear their iniquities our iniquities our sins and our transgressions are put upon him and and in that reason they're forgiven and taken away and that on that basis we can be justified and declared righteous and this is the triumph of the servant His work has been accomplished. He has carried out the will of the Father. And when Jesus hung on the cross and cried, It is finished. It was not a cry of defeat, but a victory. The Father's purpose has now been successfully fulfilled. Verse 12. Therefore, the Lord says of His servant, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong. He's using figurative language here. The imagery of victorious warriors. And the Lord says his servant will be rewarded and he will be honored and esteemed as our returning generals who are victorious in battle. And and he will return to heaven having been victorious in this greatest of battles. And he, will, he is exalted to the right hand of God. I will allot him a portion to the, with the great. He will be exalted to the right hand of God and given a name and honor above all names. And all those in heaven and earth shall bow to him. And he will rule the nations in righteousness. And he will divide the booty. To en- that means to enjoy the spoils of the conquest. He will enjoy the fellowship of those he had redeemed and justified. And the reason is given once again because he poured out himself to death. All of this honor given to him because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Because of his redemptive work, As the servant of God in his suffering and death, 
bearing the sin of a lost humanity so that he will bring them to God. So this is our Savior. This is our Savior. This vision of the suffering servant. An amazing prophecy. 700 years before. The suffering and the death and the triumph of the Lord Jesus. And we are able to see it with much greater clarity now than what Isaiah could see it. We see the Lord Jesus as the servant of the Lord par excellence as He carries out God's will for redemption. We see His life of rejection that He certainly was not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. One of strength and power and appearance. But He is a Messiah of righteousness and truth, humility and grace. We see His death in its brutal agony, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastened, scourged. We see His death in its redemptive purpose. The Lord caused our iniquities to fall upon Him. He was pierced for our transgressions. We see His submission and willingness to endure the pain and suffering. Not opening His mouth in protest or resistance. And we see Him in His triumph and victory, completing the Father's will to bring redemption to the world and being exalted for the work that He has done. And it is through this servant Jesus that God brings salvation and cleansing and healing and peace to the world. This is not just a prophecy that the servant would die. But that he would die to carry out the Lord's plan and purpose to bring salvation and redemption. He would die a death not deserving of his own, but because of our sin and the guilt and punishment for our sin was put upon Him in His death. This is our Savior. This is what God has done for us. And the benefits of the suffering, suffering, suffering servant, the benefits of the death of Christ, what He has done becomes ours through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Not by anything that we do, but by faith alone in Him. We receive the pardon and the forgiveness that He has provided. And may we each take some time this week to meditate on these things. As we've said today, begins what we call Holy Week. The events of this week that we remember, that we celebrate, are at the very heart of our Christian faith. It's not, it's not even just the death of Jesus. But that death is the appointed time 
from eternity past when the wrath of God against all sin would be satisfied. That's the transaction that took place in the death of Jesus. The reconciliation of a sinful world to God was made possible. So yes, we need to consider these things. What our Lord has done for us. His suffering for us. All that is ours because of His suffering. These these are things of the soul for the well-being of our soul. And we need to consider them. Peter says this, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing, because we know this, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We owe Him our love, our gratitude, our worship, our hearts, and our lives. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word this day, this truly amazing portion of your word, this prophecy in amazing detail of the suffering of your servant, our Savior, and all that is accomplished through his suffering. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit now will take this truth of your word, write it upon our hearts, apply it to our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would not be casual about this, would not be indifferent towards it, but that we might give you the appropriate worship and praise, even the appropriate meditation upon these truths from your word. So may you be pleased, Lord. May the Spirit of God be pleased to use the truth here to give us a greater appreciation for what you've done for us 
a greater love for what you've done for us. And greater service to you because of what you've done for us. Amen.